Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey there, Josh. Hi, Christian Taylor. How are you? Good. Glad to be back. Back from Montana. Back from Montana. Is that where they... Oh, shoot. I was going to ask a really stupid question. And I didn't realize how stupid it was until I started asking it. Um, <laughs> I have to say, it. To say is I that have to say it now. Wait, wait, wait. Is Yellowstone, this, Yellowstone's in Wyoming, right? Yes. And it okay. is Glacier Park that's in Montana. So that's. Okay. Because I was going to ask if the show Yellowstone was filmed in Montana, but then I realized, wait, no, no, no. I don't think it's in Montana at all. As I was asking the question, you know the show Yellowstone with Kevin Costner? I do. I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it's great. I keep hearing about it. I've not watched I've only seen one episode. I haven't gotten into it. Um, my wife would like to watch it, but so it's, uh, Jason, it's in Jason's Wyoming. with us. It's in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. So it could be. They could it, film oh, part of it. Yeah, Montana. it could be. So there you oh, okay. go. It's actually I, I thought it was in multiple states and it's in three. So okay. There well, there you go. Well, thank you, Jason Rugg, our trusty, dusty, research extraordinaire, button-pushing guy who knows all about the national parks. So glad that you're here. <laughs> glad to be here. I love hearing your full title. Thank you, Josh. Uh, nice to have you both here as we speak. We're having a giant snowstorm, so it's a great day to do a podcast because it's super quiet all around the house. Yeah, I, my kids were extraordinarily disappointed to find out that they did not have a school or a snow day today. They had a school day today. Every school district around them canceled school except for ours. But uh <laughs> poor kids. I know. Um it, that's that's but, one thing that was the worst about uh being homeschooled was like you know you don't get snow days. <laughs> it's like the snowing <laughs> block of the stairs down from your bedroom to the dining room. So go. <laughs> that is true. But, but aren't you like done by 11 a.m. or something like that? You know, like, or it, it really depends. School on days aren't quite as are. long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's true. And whether you can or not have your own snow day. Uh, yeah, that'd be tricky. Well, Christian, um, you said glad to be back. You just got back from Montana um, for the film festival. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So I was in Polson, Montana. Montana, for those of you who don't know, is the big sky state. And it does have a very big sky and a beautiful mountain range called the Mission Mountains, close by where I was. Um, I was at the Flathead Lake International Cinema Fest run by David and Jessica King. Uh, it is a sweet little festival in a tiny little sleepy town. Um, and usually, I mean, there is a beautiful, beautiful uh, lake there, that lake that is ginormous. It's a very big lake. And in the summertime, it's a huge tourist destination. And so in the wintertime, you know, it's really not a lot happening there, which is why, of course, they have the film festival. In the summer, there are, you know, they are apparently have a huge cherry uh, boom and their cherries are supposed to be even better than the ones in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, however, they clearly don't make cherry jam because we couldn't find anything made with cherries to purchase in the winter. So I can't report about the goodness of their cherries. Um, but this festival um, is, like I said, put on by David and Jessica King. David actually, uh, he's an interesting guy. He uh, started off in Hollywood and he worked his way up from you know a small animation studio all the way up to Disney. And he worked there for quite a long time, made a lot of contacts, and then eventually moved to um, Montana and got involved in whatever film projects they have around there. Started working for this film festival and eventually wanted to raise the professional level of it. Um, and then they ended up, I think, taking over the festival. So um, I've only been there now twice during a pandemic. And so, you know, it has my understanding of the festival has been shaped a little bit by the fact that there's hardly anybody there. 
because of the pandemic. I will say that there were more people there this year than there were last year when I was there with a girl who wore freedom. Um, and it is in a brand new theater. The showboat theater is where the festival is held. They usually take up two or three theaters and they usually have a good healthy balance between feature films and short films. And they put up their um, filmmakers, is all the ones that are nominated into a really nice hotel right by the lake, overlooking the lake. They're very generous. They you know, serve several meals at several different events. So I arrived there on Thursday night because Friday uh, afternoon is when our, or Friday evening was when Grueling Glory screened. And I always find it really important to arrive the day before the film festival begins, because especially in Polson, um, it is a very wintry time and it takes you um, to get to this town. You have to, like I had to fly from Chicago to Denver, then I had to take a flight to Missoula, Montana, then I had to drive an hour just to get there. So if there's any weather delays or interruptions, if you don't build in that margin, you could miss the screening of your film. So I usually try to build in that margin when I go. And so that left, um, you know, pretty much all day on Friday for me to do stuff. And last year I discovered the miracle of America Museum in Polson, Montana when I was there. And I discovered this because everyone said, you know, oh, your film is so patriotic. You'll love this um, museum. And the owner of the museum, Gil Mangles and his wife came to the Girl of War Freedom, begged us to come there. And they'd gotten a poster and wanted me to sign it and everything, which I did. When I went back this time, I, I found that they had framed it and hung it right in the entrance when you walked in and they were super proud of it and super happy that I came back. I did bring two friends of, of mine, my translator, one of my translators, Sarah Murdoch, and my best friend for 33 years um, came with me, as well as Josephine Cashman. Josephine Cashman is an actress in New York City, as well as a producer of a little short called Incurable. I met her at the Julian Dubuque Film Festival. And so we were so happy to be in this film festival together. It just worked out that she got on the flight in Denver with me. We flew out together, rented a car together and drove to Polson. So it was nice to bring two new people to the miracle of American Museum. And I'm talking about that because one of our Patreon supporters, Laura Preby. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast and for sending us notes and suggestions in our Patreon um, you know, platform. Uh, she really likes, um, she wanted, to, she asked us to talk more about this little museum. She also told us, you guys, that she really loved our new segment, Deja Vu DocuView, coming up near the end of this little update. So that's great to know. And the museum is fascinating because it's privately owned by Gil Mangles and his wife. And he has spent a lifetime collecting all sorts of things from all over Montana and probably other places too, but it is very Montana focused. So, you know, it starts off with a lot of Montana history. Um, there is a lot of Native American influence in that area, obviously. And so there's some of the coolest Native, Native American artifacts I've ever seen in this museum. What's interesting throughout the museum for me is that there is a lot of um, propagandizing, I don't know what you call it. Um, so with every exhibit almost somewhere, there is a little sign um, giving a specific political perspective. So for example, when you first walk in, there's a lot of guns in the very beginning. And there is a description about communism versus, um, or socialism versus, you know, liberty and freedom. And so, you know, there's sort of like a, a, an education, if you will, of our judicial system and all of that. And the day that I was there, um, they were giving a tour to a bunch of school children. And it was fascinating to hear their perspective on the second amendment in the like second exhibit when you walk into the museum. So you have to know that there is a, you know, specific political perspective that kind of goes along with this history. It isn't presented without comment. Um, so I found that fascinating. All of that aside, I was so incredibly touched by this, you know, Gil Mangles 
commitment to preserving the history. It is a ginormous museum filled with, filled with so many things from early American history all the way to recent history. And they are randomly placed in very odd places. Um, he has an indoor building and then he has a whole bunch of outbuildings that he built outside. And there are, he, it looks like he tried to set up a little town or a city out there because there is a hotel, there is a saddlery, there is a blacksmith shop, there is a little log cabin with an outhouse, uh, there is a gas station. And so in each one of these buildings, you'll find chock full of artifacts that relate. Now, they're just kind of all stuck in there with a little wire fence and you kind of peek through the fence on the inside. Um, and it is the most eclectic thing you've ever seen. So jo Josephine Cashman, when she went with me, she said the best way she could describe it was like a Richard Scarry book. <laughs> like it had been made by Richard Scarry and everything was kind of everywhere. Um, and an I Spy book or a Where's Waldo book. And that's sort of the experience when you go there. There is so much there that it is impossible to take in on your first experience. Um, and not only that, Gil is a master metal woodworker, metal smith, I guess. I don't know what you call them, but um, he does these amazing things with metal works and everything from creating a giant robot to creating Area 51, where he put UFO saucers all in it, um, to he created little art pieces. So he took these saws and he cut them into sort of a shape of a sawfish. And, you know, he's just super creative. And so a lot of his metal artworks are for sale. Uh, I think they're phenomenal. Like, honestly, I think if he was just doing that, uh, he would be pretty set for life because he so has so many of them. He's so creative. Um, and one of the most fascinating little exhibits for me was the beauty shop. So the beauty shop is an actual beauty shop. He also has a barbershop and you look inside and I, there are things in there that I've never possibly imagined. Like they look like torture element, you know, torture tools. One of them has this big like a cap and down from it, it has these metal uh, strings with these curlers attached to them. And so, you know, he even, has, he even had a doll that was, had her hair all attached to these things, you know, looking there with this beautiful, relaxed smile on her face. But all I could think was, this looks like utter complete torture and like, they're going to suck your brain out. So there was well, that's, stuff like- that's what most men, that's what most men think about when they see women go through what they go through to, you know, for hair and makeup and whatever they do. Right. <laughs> it's true. It really isn't that different when you think about it, because I mean, we do use rollers in our hair or hot irons in our hair. And it's really no different than the ones I was looking inside this beauty shop. It's just that now they're a little bit more, uh, look, look a little bit more sexy and safe, um, and not necessarily so torturous. One of the things that I thought was really funny was there was a box. It was a long wooden box that they had a doll in. And apparently there was some famous actress that they said loved to be in this, I don't know, health box. I don't know what it was. The only thing I can, uh, you know, think that it must've been is some sort of sauna thing, maybe where it was your own individual sauna. I, I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> for most of the time, these are torture. <laughs> This could be a documentary right there. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's torture, right. <laughs> you could take one item in Gil's ginormic, ginormous museum and do a documentary on that one story. And, you know, I think that Gil would be a phenomenal subject to do a documentary on, actually, um, just because, you know, he spent a lifetime collecting all these things or making all these things. And Every single one of them has a story. He also has a whole schoolhouse on his property, an old one-room schoolhouse with instructions taped to the wall from 1817 is one set of instructions for teachers. And the other one was from 1925, I think, instructions for teachers that said things like, you know, a teacher's skirt could not be two inches above her ankles or else she would be fired or a, a male teacher 
could have one night off of the week to, um, to court, um, you know, things like if they were found in, if men were found in a barber shop, they were fired. Um, if, you know, I mean, there was just this long list of things. It was like, they also had to sign out before they were to go out of town. Like they couldn't just leave. And they had to have five years worth of teaching and respecting all of these rules to get a raise of 25 cents per month. So, you know, it's those sort of things that when you go in there and you see the schoolhouse and you read this history, it does put put things into perspective for you that you've never thought about before. Um, so there you go. There's a little bit about the miracle of America museum. That's pretty cool. Well, how, how'd your film do? Great question. So, um, after we went to the museum, we went back to the, um, to the theater and they had had an opening night reception for us where we met other filmmakers and people in the community. That's one thing I like about this film festival a lot. Whereas Sundance is majority focused on filmmakers and filmmakers and actors and everything flock there to meet each other. Here in this little town, it's kind of the one excitement thing that exciting thing that comes into town. So you have a lot of people in the community that want to meet the filmmakers and see the film. So we inter we interacted with a bunch of the community people at that, uh, and then went to um, went to the screening. Now, what I found interesting about the screening this year is the uh, David and Jessica said they really only had a tiny handful of features that were submitted and only two that were good enough to get into the festival. And, you know, I didn't think those were such strong contenders either. Um, they also didn't have a ton of shorts either. So their perception of things was, in 2021, when I was in that film festival, there was a lot of great content. But if you think about it, in 2020, most of the projects were probably in post-production and, and ready to be submitted. But then in 2020, filming was incredibly difficult. So, you know, when time rolls around in 2021 to submit new films for this year, uh, there probably were not a ton. That's what they were thinking. I kind of concur with that. Um, my film, it was such an interesting experience being there, not with the girl who wore freedom. It was shocking, actually. I didn't really think about that part of it because um, I don't know why I didn't, but I really didn't so much so that when I went there, I didn't have cards made for grueling glory postcards to tell people. Usually you make a postcard and you put on there when your screenings are and you hand them out to people you meet. I didn't do that. I didn't even have business cards with me. Um, and I did take business cards for the girl who wore freedom. So because grueling glory is a companion piece. So I'm in there with a whole bunch of shorts. The short block takes about an hour and 15 minutes. and the shorts that I was in there with were super strong, uh, you know, for, for this category. And I really felt like when I saw that first block of shorts, I knew right away, even though we were nominated for the best documentary short, we were not going to win. So that was a weird feeling for me. Cause typically I'm like, oh yeah, we got this. Um, but our little short is really a companion piece to the girl who wore freedom. And on its own, it was sort of taken out of context. So when they called me up for the Q&A, first of all, nobody had questions, which I thought was interesting because usually at the end of The Girl Who Wore Freedom, I'm peppered with tons and tons of questions. Um, so there were not a lot of questions. And when I went to talk about Grueling Glory, I, I couldn't talk about it without explaining The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And so I ended up spending a lot of time talking about that film and how this was born out of that film. And so it was just a very strange experience. Um, people liked it, but they weren't talking about it. They weren't coming up to me afterwards, asking me a bunch of different questions. I think it's because as I look now in the bigger picture of things, and we didn't win the best doc short, um, we, the person that won that, it was a, a little documentary called Mission Mountain, and it was very well done. And it was about a first generation rancher that kind of took over the ranch from her parents and began employing new techniques to raise her cattle. 
And even I would have voted for that documentary over our own. So um, I think it, it was it was a good experience for me to realize on its own grueling glory is it's not really making a statement. It's a companion piece. So it's one person's point of view from one event from this bigger story, the girl at war freedom. Um, and so it's more of a thoughtful contemplative, Oh, that's nice kind of reaction that people had at the end of that thing. So then the next day we spent time watching other shorts, um, most of them documentaries, but I did see one I wanted to mention that was a narrative and it was called Feeling Through. And I was really stunned by it. I had no idea, knew nothing about this uh, little short before going in there. And it was this, um, it was about this African-American kid who kind of seemed random and lost in a town, wandering around, asking people if he could come by or could he sleep there. And in the meantime of walking the streets, he met this guy who was standing at a street corner, clearly blind. Um, and when he got there, there was a sign being held up by this guy. Can you help touch me if you can help me cross the street? And so this young man touched him, helped him cross the street, and the sign said he was deaf and mute. And so what happened through the rest of this was this experience of this young man helping this older deaf and um, you know blind man and mute man through the next few hours. And you see the effect this has on both of those people as they kind of as you know, the one younger one helps him and the older one depends on him. And at the end, I learned that this was a film that was produced by Marley Matlin and by the Helen Keller Foundation. And I did walk away from that film being profoundly affected, thinking about what a person's life might be like if they have to rely on the hearing, seeing public. And this guy would write on his little he had a pad of paper that he would take around and he would write on it messages that he had for everybody else. So at one point he wrote a message, you know, how long till the bus comes? And the young guy had to figure out how in the world do I tell him how long it is till the bus comes? And he took his hand and began tapping into his hand. And so instantly they formed this way of communicating because at, then the next time he wanted to communicate instead of writing on his pad, the man wrote the letters in the guy's hand. So it was just very poignant. You got to understand what the point of view would be like of someone that is, you know, deaf and blind and mute. Uh, and, and I walked away changed and shaken by that. So I, I saw that film. You saw Feeling Through? I did. Where'd was, you see uh, it? I don't, <laughs> the more you're talking, the more I'm thinking, boy, this sounds familiar. <laughs> Why do I know this? And then it occurred to me, I. I think it was on social media. I, I, I think it was in a, a feed and I came across it and thought this sounds interesting. And I, I just watched it one day. Um, but yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I, I'm, I don't want to spoil it for people. You'll have to tell me after we end recording. I forgot how it ended. I, I, I have a good feeling that I remember after watching it and, and watching this boy have his struggles, but then obviously meet this other guy with struggles of his own and, and, uh, and then just what he learned from that. So I can't remember what happened at the end. So when, it, when we're done, when we say goodbye, <laughs> remind me. <laughs> well, I hope that people are able to find this on social media. Maybe you can find it on the Heller Keller Foundation website, but um, it was very worthy of an award and it did win best narrative short. And okay. the interesting thing that I learned about Mission Mountain, and I guess now, uh, it probably is the same for feeling through filmmakers, uh, sorry, festival directors, if they're short on content, they will kind of scour film freeway or other festivals in order to find good material to, you know, ask them to submit. And I know this because, um, I was sitting next to Amy, the, um, main character in Mission Mountain. And she, I said, how did you end up in this festival? And she goes, oh, well, they, the directors reached out and asked us to submit. 
And that is how that actually happened to me on the way home. I got an email from the Sarasota Film Festival, which is a 25 year old film festival saying we would love for grueling glory to be included in our competition. Um, you know, they're waiving all the fees. Just if you're open to that, submit all these materials. And so I do think there is sort of a shortage of some content for some of these festivals, which is why they're reaching out. So my guess is David and Jessica reached out to whoever the feeling through people were and asked to include it in their, um, in their festival. So I do hope people can find it out there on the web because it's a very, very good little narrative short. Did you look, Jason? You have that look in your eye like I looked it up. What'd you find? <laughs> it is just available on YouTube. You can just watch it on YouTube right now. Um, just look up Feeling Through, and uh, it's an 18-minute uh, clip, 18-minute uh, video up there. Um, I guess it was nominated for an Oscar in 2019. So this is a while you know back, so I don't... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I knew about it. Yeah. And that brings up another thing, you know, typically the rules for a film festival are you can't qualify if your if your film can be found freely on the internet somewhere, or if it has distribution or whatever, but film festival directors do make exceptions if they need good content for their audiences. And, you know, clearly this is one. Yeah. It was nominated for best live action short film. Oh, in 2021. But I guess it was made in 2019 and wasn't necessarily released until 2021. So yeah, definitely worth the 18 minutes for sure. Um, and I was glad to have watched that. So uh, this film festival was just a very different experience than anything that ever happened with the girl who wore freedom. I was thankful for it. It was kind of humbling, actually. Um, one thing, my, one of my favorite things that happened was on the last day when I was in a short block, the directors of the festival who usually start off the Q and a had a conflict with something else they needed to do. And I heard them talking about it and I was like, well, I can do the Q and a for you. And so I did I just mentioned it in passing while well, I showed up the next day for my short block. And they're like, Hey, we'd really like to take you up on that offer to do this Q and a. And I was like a pig in mud. I was so excited <laughs> to talk with these filmmakers and actually kind of do film talk. And I had seen all of the other films in there. So one of them was called the accessible outdoors. Jason, I would love for you to look that up and see if you can find it. The accessible outdoors was another one that really challenged my understanding of things. This was a film done by uh, two young filmmakers, Michka and Francesco or Francisco. Um, they are from the LA area. They made this little short for a company, I think it's called Nature Tracks, um, but it turned out to be a very touching short. And they interviewed people with disabilities talking about their desire to be outside, to be at the beach or be in this forest, but never being able to go because of their wheelchairs. Like you never think about that. You always think about buildings or bathrooms or hotels or things like this. Uh, but this company, Nature Tracks, created this device where uh, people in wheelchairs are able to roll up into this. It almost looks like a, a tank track and you can, they can roll their wheelchair on there. And then those devices will take them through rough terrain and seeing how they navigated that world was heartbreaking and fascinating. Uh, so the, um, accessible outdoors also was nominated for the best doc, best doc short. And then, Another one that I watched, um, I'm trying to think now it just went out of my head. I'll have to come back to that. But anyway, um, you know, these shorts really challenged me to think about things, which is in, in contrast with grueling glory, I didn't walk away. So I felt like, you know, we were in this category with these kind of deep films that talked about issues such as, you know, struggles that disabled people have or you know, the new unique ways that people are doing ranching these days uh, to make our society better. I was like, those, have, those are much meatier than kind of our little short. So, so yeah, that was my experience. Awesome, awesome. Well, what, what's happening with the girl who wore freedom? 
Um, so while I was there, um, I had gotten an email actually from the um, National Infantry Museum. And I was thrilled because they just reached out to me on their own. They asked if they could have a meeting with me because they're interested in putting the Girl of War Freedom in their museum uh, in some way. Wow. So, so that was interesting. Where located? Um, somewhere in the East Coast. I, that's a little bit of research I need to do because I'm supposed to be talking with them today. J- Jason talking. can do it. He's he's a he's a button pushing guy. He could yeah, just hey right button now. pushing guy, figure it out. I think it's in <laughs> I think it's in Columbus, Georgia. Actually, now that I'm thinking about oh. it, but National Infantry Museum. Um, and really, what that reminded me about was how important strategic partnerships are for a passion project. Um, they are the ones that have access, oftentimes, to a greater public. So if we were to make a strategic partner partnership with L'Oreal or a different museum or another company, they have access to a lot of other people where your material can be seen. So strategic partnerships um, are super important. Um, We did not have any exciting distribution news this week, so we're still waiting for Netflix to watch. Um, I counted up, there are eight people or eight companies that we are still waiting to get an answer from. so there's still hope out there for some other distribution. I'm trying to remain positive about that. Uh, Jason just messaged me in the chat. Uh, Jason, tell us where uh, where the National Infantry Museum is. It's in Columbus, Georgia. You were right. I was right. Yay. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> um, and I do think one of the things that was challenging is as I was at this um, film festival and I did share about the girl who were freedom, everybody wanted to know, oh, where can we watch this film? And the only place I had to tell them was, uh, well, you have to take a Delta flight or you got to have Apple TV. And that was hard because most people don't have Apple TV and aren't going to take a Delta flight just to see our film. Uh, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, you know, really trying to figure out what to do about all of that. Um, how, how long is your contract or agreement with distribution? Yeah, so we signed a distribution deal in September 2020 uh, with our company, and it's a five-year contract. So at the end of five years, you can re-up or yeah. go somewhere else. But then the question is, is your documentary still relevant? So we know ours will be relevant because it's an evergreen film, as we say in the industry. There's always going to be a D-Day and there's always going to be other military uh, events where the the film can be shown. People are still alive. There'll still be veterans around for, you know, a few more years anyway. So, but, you know, there's there's a buzz around your film during the film festival and in the first year of its release. And it feels kind of fresh, but after that uh, it is a little bit harder, I think to find a distribution deal, particularly if we have already approached all of you know these different companies and they turn us down, you know, as far as I understand, we don't get a second chance. So um, that being said, as I look at popular properties, they jump around from every platform. They'll be on Netflix one day and, you know, a year later they'll be on Amazon. But again, those are popular products that people want to see, you know, and already know about. So, so yeah, that's mindless entertainment, not worth their time. (laughs) Right. Which is why I absolutely love documentaries. So that brings us to our new segment Deja vu, DocuView. That's right. That's our ding, new ding, segment. Ding. We bring you a documentary recommend. Um, Whoever came up with that yeah. name should be fired. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a combination between the three of us. Jason Hoban told me he is thinking about trying to figure out how to make us a little stinger or something to introduce our new segment. And I was like, well, we're trying to figure out a new name. Uh, if you can come up with anything, let me know. He's like, oh, I think it works. And so anyway, you listeners out there, if you can think of anything else, you know, let us know. Or if you like the title, let us know that too. Um, you know, you know it, like all things, it'll eventually just grow on you and you'll forget that you hated it or, <laughs> or something. <laughs> you know, it's just, it is what it is. One can only hope. Um, all right. So Jason, you don't usually get to go first. So I would like you to go first this time. And sh- what do you have for us today? 
Yeah, so I was thinking about it, and I know we've talked about it before, but we haven't said it as, you know, one of one of these deja vu docu-views. Um, Five Came Back, the documentary mm. on Netflix yes. um, about the filmmakers who went to World War II, like all decided, I'm going to leave Hollywood and I'm going to go uh, document this war. And that was, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal documentary. Uh, I don't even remember how long it is. It's, it's several episodes. I know we've talked about it before. Um, Christian, what, what's something you remember from that? Yeah. So I think there are five episodes because I think there are five directors and that's why it's called five came back. And so each episode is about one of these Hollywood directors and each one had a different experience. Each one had a different point of view and a different job. So um, while, why don't you look up these directors? I know one is William Wyler, one is John Huston, one is um, oh, Capra, Robert Capra. Um, and Frank I'm, Capra. Frank Capra, and I'm missing two others. Um, so William Wyler, Frank Capra, George Stevens, John George Ford, Stevens. and John Huston. Yes. Um, and Frank Capra, Robert Capra, Frank Capra, Robert Capra actually was his son and he was a photographer on D-Day. Um, Frank Capra, he ended up making uh, little short films about the war. A lot of times educating the GIs for why they fight or what they need to do. So there were educational videos. There were also promotional videos like that would go before a movie or whatever, or a newsreel. He would do a lot of those things, but mostly training videos and stuff like that. And then William Wyler, uh, I think that he was the one filming. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but Battle of Midway. Um, I think he might've been there really filming that battle. And this footage you see in the Battle of Midway, which isn't a completely, it's a fictionalized version of the Battle of Midway. Some of the real footage in there was William Wyler's. The most fascinating thing that I know about William Wyler is that uh, he was up in a B-17, I think, and went deaf while he was up there. And um, then he was no longer able to produce films. And he went back to Hollywood, kind of felt like he was done. But then at some point he made the film, which we've talked about before, uh, which is the best years of our lives. And it was a powerful film about three guys from the war coming home and what their experience was like, um, just had a profound impact on me. So, um, so yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It, it's a profound documentary series. I highly recommend it for sure. Good call. Are you sure right. you have something? Huh? Were you, were you gonna say something? I was gonna say, what are your picks? Okay, I'll go next. Uh, mine is 1988, uh, Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line. Just ring a bell with anyone? No. It's a documentary. Is that the prequel yeah, to the Thin it, Red Line? <laughs> no, this, this was kind of groundbreaking because it combined actual footage. Well, they had to like recreate. They, they were, I mean, today it'd be like watching Dateline or something where they <laughs> they hire actors to recreate a, a murder scene or something. Uh, but back then, they, they hadn't done that before with documentaries where they. They, they shot new footage to kind of tell the story. The, the story is about a guy who's accused of a murder. He's wrongly confused. Conf oh my gosh, can't talk to that. He's wrongly convicted of a murder. And this film actually helps exonerate him. It's, it's very, it's, it's, so it's groundbreaking in the fact that it helped the guy go free. It's groundbreaking in the fact that they uh, had reenactment reenacted footage in it uh but <laughs> i it, it is a very good documentary it, it's, it's it's if you like documentaries it's interesting to check but if you watch the thin blue line then you have to go watch after that documentary now which is the comedy spoof documentary series on netflix by bill Hader and fred armison and they have these each episode is kind of they're remaking famous old documentaries and this is one of them it's hysterical it's funny even if you've never th seen the thin blue line but it's much funnier if you have seen thin blue line so go watch the movie and then go watch documentary now 
Great you know stuff. where we can find the thin blue line and documentary now off the top of your head or can well, you documentary now is net netflix okay. i don't know about thin blue line you can watch thin blue line on amc plus <laughs> i don't even have that i don't even, even know what that is <laughs> <laughs> all right i i was just watching a stand-up routine with uh mark morin uh the wft podcast guy is that what I say his name mm-hmm. right uh, okay. Mark Marin, I think. Marin, Mark Marin, thank you. <clears throat> he, 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 part of his routine, he was talking about how he, he just doesn't have, he doesn't know how much time he has left in his life. And so when people recommend TV shows and series, he's like, nah, I, I don't have time. I, I don't have the time I've left. I, I can't watch it. But he said, half the problem is, is not only have not heard these shows, I've never even heard of where you're supposed to watch these shows. <laughs> it used to have three stations. Everyone was kind of on the same page. And now there's so many different platforms to watch stuff. And half of them you never even heard of. There, there's a great, speaking of documentaries, this is a kind of documentary. It's coming out, The Offer. It's the making of The Godfather, but it's, you know, like a fiction. I mean, they it's based on the true story, but they've hired actors. You know, it's it's not a documentary. and But it's on Paramount Plus. And I don't have Paramount Plus. So I'm thinking, oh man, I want to watch this series, but I don't uh, I don't need to have another streaming service. Josh, uh, you're the one who turned me on to um the Smartless podcast. Did you yes. did, have you listened to the one with Woody Harrelson? And he's talking about Tubi. Yes. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm on the show on Tubi. I, I don't actually know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, other people, and then like jason bateman's like do i have tubi do i have tubi <laughs> they don't, they, nobody knew what tubi was <laughs> right right i only know about tubi because it came loaded in my apple tv so right. most people feel that way it's like oh it's that thing that my tv when it's not plugged into anything it just kind of defaults to that i guess <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah. that's a lot of good stuff so, there so uh thank you josh for educating us on several different things today Mm. Um, one I wanted to throw out there, nobody's ever heard of, I'm sure. Uh, however, I do think that it is currently on Amazon maybe, um, or Hulu. The one that I saw coming home on the plane was precious and it's called pandas. That's it. Just pandas. And it's a 46 minute short most shorts are, I, I thought, 30 minutes or less, but this is a 46-minute film. And my guess is it was made for a zoo because this documentary was really fascinating because I came to it thinking it was just a regular documentary, not associated with a zoo or anything like that. And I thought, wow, the way that they've made this is seriously interesting because it's narrated by Kristen Bell and most of the documentary is completely narration. It, you know, you don't have any talking heads. You don't really hear a lot from the interviewees, of course, because they're pandas, but um, there are people that work with pandas uh, and you would think they would sit down and you would talk to them, but mostly it's beautiful footage of China and there's even some in North Carolina or Maine, actually. And there's footage of, of course, these adorable pandas. And it's all about how the Chinese people in this one particular area are trying to save the pandas. And it's this, you know, little enclave where they've raised 200 different pandas, but they're trying to figure out how to introduce them into the wild. And so they find out there is a black bear expert, I think in Maine, who has been doing that. So the Chinese um, that own this little um, reserve go and talk with this American guy returning the black bears. Yes, Jason, I can tell you're looking up something. So I I found it. It was made for IMAX. It's an uh-huh. IMAX original film. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that was even possible. <laughs> they shot these pandas on IMAX. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so it was stunning. I mean, it's stunning vistas and stunning, uh, adorable little pandas, just phenomenal shots. And the music was what I found so interesting. So the music is, I mean, they have all sorts of, you know, 70s, 80s music, along with some original score music. Uh, it's, they pair it so well with what's going on with the pandas. So uh, 
and I'm not going to give away kind of what the ending is at all, but um, does it tell you where you can watch it? Is it Amazon or Hulu? Wait, there's a story and there's like a, a re resolution, like a, yeah, a climax yeah. and there's a, okay. Yeah. It is on Hulu. Yeah, it's on Hulu. Yeah. So yeah, it's a real story. And now, so, and so that's, yeah, go ahead. You said there's music from the eighties. Yeah. Did they have ABBA pandas? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. ABBA may be in there. I would love to see the soundtrack. Google and see if you can find the music on there. Cause it was, it was really interesting. Um, the other thing that I found curious, it's sort of, as I was watching it and I realized it was a short, it made me think back to all the shorts that I had just seen in this film festival, because as most people know, there isn't a lot of things that can be done with shorts. Nobody really wants to watch a nine minute movie or a three minute movie. Um, there's not a lot of ways to watch those. Although what I find fest, uh, fascinating at film festivals, the majority of people enjoy seeing the shorts because they're not committed to a whole hour and a half or so. Right. They, right. Um, they can pick and choose where they want to go and see these tiny little bite-sized shorts because they only usually have two or three days. And so they don't want their whole time taken up by features. Um, but yet at the end of the day, there's not a lot of things to do with shorts. When I was talking to all these other short directors and I asked them, what are you going to do with these? They're like, oh, I don't know. It'll probably live on my website. And I would say, well, is this sort of a, you know, a proof of concept for a feature you want to do? Most often the right. answer was no. Uh, you know, the accessible outdoors said they had been hired to make this for the, you know, for a website for clients. Um, and then the mission mountain, um, movie, the, um, main subject in that Amy, she said, I think these guys just needed, um, you know, to show that they are good filmmakers and can make quality films and have something for IMDB and for their resume. So that people do that a lot. And people also make shorts who are in film school or just out of film school to, you know, to continue kind of learning. Um, so that, I found that's a good point you bring up, uh, you know, in terms of like, you know, making something that is not necessarily going to live forever. Uh, I mean, a film can, but if people aren't watching it, then, but that's a reality. I mean, you're going to make stuff and then people might see it for a year or two and then never see it again. I, I got hired to shoot some footage for, um, a pro-life organization, 20, five years ago and it was pretty interesting stuff but i do think back like you know back then people got to watch some of the footage but i'm sure no one has watched any of that for the last 20 years or ever will again especially now because on, it's on vhs and nobody wants to watch that but but that was just that it had its moment its season it served its purpose and then it's over yeah. Well, another uh, group of filmmakers that I spoke to, they did a little short called Your Friend Ranger Doug. And I would love for you to look that up, Jason, and see if it can be viewed right now. But their situation was they were in a class in California and they were given a budget with which to do a little short film. And they you know, got to pick their subject and they ended up picking climate change and they were going to look at sort of Glacier Park and, you know, the differences that have happened over the years. And they ended up interviewing one of the Rangers who happens to be 96 now, I think. And hearing his story and seeing him as a person was much more compelling, a much more compelling, compelling through line. So it ended up being a marriage between focusing on climate change, but, but more you know, interestingly enough, it was Doug who had seen the climate change, but also a whole bunch of other things in the park and the change in the park itself. So, you know, every situation um, when I talk to someone who's done a short is different. The difference between shorts and features, you know, shorts don't really make any money. There's nowhere you're going to sell a short and make a ton of money. Um, so either they live online somewhere or they're just in your resume or in your reel or something like that. So yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing. And most features probably don't make any money either. <laughs> <laughs> Independent features. Clearly that's, uh, well, e that's even, even, uh, non-independent, you know, I mean, the studios make, I mean, it might be different today, but I mean, they, they have like, okay, here's our, our tent poles and these are going to cover all of our expenses. And then here's these, you know, 80% of our other films, fingers crossed that they'll make their money back knowing they're probably going to lose money, but that's all right. 
they're giving it a shot and they're going to make money from their superhero film or whatever. Yeah. They're basically with all those other smaller projects or whatever, they're throwing spaghetti to the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's kind of what I understand distributors do as well. They, uh, you know, they're going to buy up or lock in a whole bunch of properties. They're going to know that maybe one, two, three are going to really hit big and, and strike a chord. Uh, and then it, it'll be those that sort of make their money for them, not all the other ones. So yeah, it's an interesting and not easy business. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, we should wrap up uh, before we say goodbye. Christian, is there anything else we, you want to remind everyone of? No, I just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we put out a little note to them today to let them know that um, we you know, are going to be reaching out and trying to grow our Patreon base. So they won't be receiving any emails or anything. They may see some stuff on social media, but uh, we are hoping to, to grow this community. We are going to share grueling glory, the short with our Patreon subscribers somewhere in the near future. And um, yeah, we just appreciate you guys tremendously. So thank you for being in our inner circle. I just want to say my favorite line from today was you don't hear much from the interviewees because, well, they're pandas. <laughs> Thank you, Christian, for that. You're welcome. And to, our, <laughs> and to our listeners, I want to say thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, except for pandas, and you can be the one to tell your story. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarefreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.